Welcome back to the Get Unstuck and On Target podcast. I'm Mike O'Neill with Bench Builders, and we specialize in helping leaders solve those tough people problems that are slowing their company's growth. Joining me today from Seattle is Lisa Fain. Lisa leads the Center for Mentoring Excellence that helps organizations create better leaders through mentoring. Lisa's passion for creating inclusive work environments fuel her strong conviction that leveraging differences creates a better workplace, drives better business results, and creates meaningful work relationships that make each day better. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, Mike. So glad to be here. Lisa, I'm looking forward to our conversation on multiple levels. And I introduce you as the person who runs the Center for Mentoring Excellence. Why don't we just start with this notion of mentoring? We bat that around a lot, but if we were to describe mentoring in an organizational setting, what constitutes a good mentor relationship? Oh, that's a great question. So a good first thing to say, Mike, is that mentoring is distinguished from most other relationships in the workplace in that it's really focused on learning. I like to say learning is the purpose, the product, and the process of mentoring. So unlike a supervisory relationship, which is focused on performance, unlike a coaching relationship, which is kind of a one-way relationship focused on the coachee, mentoring is a reciprocal relationship where both the mentor and the mentee give and get and they partner together to co-create a relationship that's focused on development for the mentee's skills knowledge or ability so it can be lots of different things it can be formal it can be informal it can be structured it can be unstructured but the key thing is the reciprocity and the accountability and the focus on learning so you would you repeat those three things again the reciprocity yep the accountability, the accountability. and the focus on learning and when people hear the word mentoring, they most typically think of someone who is older mentoring someone is younger, but that's not the only way it works nowadays, is it? No. So that is the most traditional way, and it, some might say even the most obvious way, but there's peer mentoring that occurs that can be one-on-one, -on -one, that can be group mentoring. There's a term that I like to call complementary me mentoring that many people call reverse mentoring, where somebody who's more junior mentors somebody who's more senior. I don't love the term reverse mentoring because it sort of implies that, you know, despite everything else, the more senior person has something to learn and the more junior person has something to offer. Whereas mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, that's a bit of an assumption. Complementary meaning that both mentor and mentee have something to to bring and there's this kind of reciprocity in learning and in focus on skills. So it happens in all of those ways. Some people form personal boards of advisors with various different kinds of mentors on there as well. So all sorts of different modalities that can work really well. Oh, you've caught my attention here. Some people form kind of a personal team of advisors. Yep. Did I hear that correctly? You did. You um, did. And so they would they would be ta they tap into different people, maybe for different purposes. Mentoring organizations sometimes will say, oh, yeah, we've got a mentoring program. But it's, it seems to me that more often than not, it's a name only. If a mentoring program for organization is successful, what does success look like? 
Yeah, it doesn't look like pair and pray. I call it pair and pray where they pair people and then they just kind of pray that it succeeds, right? That's not a successful mentoring program. A successful mentoring program has integration with learning talent and strategy objectives. So we've thought about the organization's objectives and really linking that into, as well as the talent objectives. It has accountability. It has training, so capacity building for mentors and mentees. And then ongoing support and reinforcement of learning, whether that's continuous communication with mentors and mentees, whether it's surveying how they're doing and achievement of goals, certainly tracking of goals and goal measurement, tracking of outcomes, and really providing those support and resources along the way. And then accountability. We already talked about accountability in the mentoring relationship, but accountability in the mentoring program is important as well. What we will be discussing here a little bit about is the importance of inclusion and trust in a mentoring effort. But as we continue to unpack mentoring, you've described what a good mentoring program looks like in an organization. And you've mentioned training. Therefore, it seems to me that are you helping organizations train people how to be a good mentor and how to be a good mentoree? Yeah. I mean, there's really three forms of training. One is training mentors on how to be good mentors, training mentees on how to be good mentees, how to ask for what they need. And then making sure that mentoring program administrators and the support team have the resources that they need as well. So lots of different elements of training. I like to think of it more like a kickoff than uh, training because it's really our, the way we approach things, Mike, is a little bit different than how other people approach it. It's not parachuting in and talking to the mentors about how they should be a mentor and talking to the mentors about how they should be a mentee. It's providing a forum for the mentor and the mentee to start to co-create their relationship together. So we do spend a little time alone with the mentees and a little time alone with the mentors, but most of the time is enabling the mentors and the mentees to co-create the relationship together. So by the time that they walk out of our sessions, they have a playbook for the conversations that they want to be having, at least in the first 90 days of their mentoring relationship, if not beyond. Is there a somewhat of a ideal framework? For example, you said that they may have a playbook that would address the first 90 days. Are these relationships intended to go on for long periods of time or do you tip, do you sometimes give them a chance to sunset and perhaps find new combinations? Great question. So most organizational mentoring programs have a set period. But what we know about mentoring relationships about successful mentoring relationships is they follow four predictable phases. There's a preparation phase, getting ready, which is where you have some self-awareness, you get ready and then awareness of others. There's the negotiating phase where you're establishing agreements and setting up the guardrails. There's the enabling growth phase, which is where you're goal setting and goal getting. And then there's this closure phase. Mm -hmm. And the closure phase sometimes is about, okay, Mike, our year is up. It's time for us to move on. We talk about what we've learned. We talk, we appreciate one another and we decide if we're going to move forward. Or maybe it's, you know, Mike, we've decided that we're actually going to continue the mentoring relationship, but we still need to look back on this period and talk about what we learned, talk about, you know, what we've appreciated from one another and how we want to define our relationship going forward. Because even though we're still going to be mentor and mentee, 
maybe we want to talk about different things. Maybe we want to have more of a complimentary mentoring relationship. Maybe we want to switch to more of an advisory role. So it's, you know, people can have mentors for a lifetime, but marking the end of a mentoring period doesn't necessarily mean marking the end of a mentoring relationship. So it can be really either of those things. It's fascinating. I appreciate your clarification. What I did not mention in the introduction is a little bit about your background. I know that you're a double graduate of Northwestern with a BS in social policy, and you got your law degree from there as well, which is really an interesting combination. I know that you've practiced in a corporate setting that probably helped burnish how you come to this role. How did law school prepare you for leading the Center for Mentoring Excellence? Oh, I love that question. So it's interesting. My first answer is a glib one, which is it didn't. And then (laughs) as I think about it, you know, I, I, Center for Mentoring Excellence is an organization that was actually founded by my mother in 1992. And I had no aspirations to get into this business, not because I didn't, there was anything wrong with it. It just wasn't on my radar screen. I was going to be a lawyer. What law taught me, I was a management side employment lawyer, Mike. So that meant I was counseling employers on how to uh, deal with issues within the workplace and also litigating cases where there was were employee employer issues. And one of the things that it taught me is that most of the issues that came to me by the time that they were a problem, read a lawsuit or something, right? Or about to be a lawsuit or a, a, a EEO complaint or something, were the result of people not having really fully communicated well, proactively, created a relationship and seeing each other in the workplace. And as Pollyanna as that sounds, I believe that so much of what I was reactive to as an attorney helps me to see how to be more proactive in creating better workplaces. Lisa, you may know I have a background in HR. And Mm. so regrettably, I had our counsel on speed dial. And, but if I'm calling our attorneys, it's almost too late. What yeah. happened has already happened. And, and from a company standpoint, we're in damage control. And I'm hearing you say loud and clear, you saw that time and time again. One of the reasons I want to bring that up is because mentoring comes in many forms and fashions. You give us an idea of what an ideal mentoring program would look like in an organization. But you've also pointed out that it has a lot of the ability to kind of tailor it to the circumstance. Mm -hmm. But mentoring also involves other aspects, and that would be inclusion and trust. And I don't know which order we'd like to kind of go in but there is a, in organizations, a, a, such a, a renewed emphasis on inclusion. We hear about it, we read about it, but from your perspective, when you knew that we we're gonna talk about inclusion and trust in the context of mentoring, can you define, let's start with inclusion. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so to define inclusion, you have to define the word diversity. Why? Because those two words come together a lot, right? We say diversity and inclusion. 
So diversity is means difference. It answers the question, who? It's about uh, who is in the workplace. And it's true that diversity is can be a real asset in the workplace. We know that it can have increased business performance, better, better results in the workplace, better work environments. People feel more engaged. I mean, the data, there's a ton of data about the potential benefits of diversity. But really, all that data is about the potential benefits of inclusion, not the potential benefits of diversity. Diversity is an asset only if you leverage the diversity. If you ignore the difference or suppress the difference or think the difference is bad, you're not going to get all these benefits of inclusion. So what's inclusion? Inclusion is what you get when you leverage diversity. It's about uh, creating a place of belonging. It's about creating a welcoming work environment where people feel seen and heard and they don't have to spend their time worrying about whether they're going to be accepted. It's about getting those results that we've all heard that diversity can have by creating an environment where people are able to show up authentically. So that that's the general definition in a nutshell. Andres Tapia, who has written a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion, as a real leader in the space, has a great quote that I often use that I think summarizes that so well. He says, diversity is the mix and inclusion is making the mix work. Oh, that's excellent. So from your vantage point, looking into an organization, if you're trying to help an organization make the mix work, how do you measure that? How do you measure that? You can measure it through lots of different uh, ways and a lot will depend on what is important to the organization, right? But you measure it through engagement scores. You measure it by looking at things from an equity lens. An equity lens is about meeting people where they are based on the needs that they have. So a lot of people look at it from a quality lens, which to me, a quality lens is like peanut butter. Like you're spreading the peanut butter even over depending, it doesn't matter where, where you need, where, what the people's needs are. Hmm. Equity is about recognizing where there might be systemic injustices, where there may be different needs and making sure that people have an ability to start, you know, a level playing field, so to speak. So how you measure inclusion, you measure it through relationships. You measure it through culture surveys. You measure it through retention. You measure it by looking at, okay, what do we have diversity within our workforce? And are people having equal opportunity for promotion and elevation and contribution in the workplace? So promotion levels can be one. Certainly hiring is important, but hiring is about diversity. Inclusion is what happens when people come in. So you have to have the people, people in the environment and then you have to make sure that you have opportunities for everybody to contribute. So I think I know that's sort of a loosey-goosey answer, but I think there's lots of different ways to measure inclusion in the workforce, in the workplace. I didn't find that loosey-goosey at all. I think you gave us a number of examples by which you can look at the effectiveness of your inclusion efforts, and there are a number of ways you can do that. You just made a comment that kind of caught my attention, and that is, Organizations sometimes stop with the definition of diversity on the employment side. Mm -hmm. And that's just the first step. Right, right. I wanna move to trust and probably come back to inclusion in just a moment. Idea of trust. We know it's at the root, but how powerful is trust? Oh, wow. I mean, trust, trust makes such a difference 
in our working relationships, our mentoring relationships specifically, but our working relationships as a whole. Without trust, there's no psychological safety. And without psychological safety, there's no true sharing. There's no ability to show up authentically. There's no ability to create belonging. So trust to me is a threshold to all of those things. And trust is so critical because without it, we're spending all of this time kind of creating our own boundaries, artificial boundaries, creating obstacles to sharing, identifying, finding obstacles to sharing. With trust, we really can give people benefit of the doubt. We can establish deeper relationships. We can encourage people to just give things their all because they don't worry about being judged in the same way. They have a safety net. I like to say that mentoring is a safety safety net, a sounding board, and a laboratory. And none of that happens, Mike, without trust. Mm. You have to have trust to have all of those things. You know, we've been talking about the notion of trust. It's so foundational. We've kind of touched on diversity and inclusion, and that was kind of in the generic sense. Why don't we talk about trust and inclusion when it comes to a mentoring uh, effort? How do you advise your clients to be assured that the mentoring program they have or the one they're trying to install has both trust and inclusion as just part of the DNA? Yeah. So let's start with trust. There's really four levels of trust when you're thinking about a mentoring program or a mentoring culture. And I almost like to think about it like a triangle. On the, on the bottom, this foundational level is self-trust. So mentors need to have self-trust. Mentees need to have self-trust. What's self-trust? Self-trust is the trust in yourself, personal trust, that you are able to give what you need to give as a mentor, that you will are able to show up for your own learning as a mentee, that you can give the mentoring relationship what it needs and what it deserves. And too many people skip over that phase, Mike, and they're sort of building this, trying to build this environment of trust without starting with the self-trust. So the self-trust is the first piece. The next piece is trust in the other person. So that's, you know, trust in you as my mentor or me or, or your trust in me as your mentee, that I have both the ability to uh, give what I need to the mentor, to the mentoring relationship, the benevolence to, you know, I have your interest at heart and you have my interest at heart and the integrity to show up, meet my commitments, be there for you and honor the mentoring relationship. So those are the three really components of interpersonal trust in a mentoring relationship, ability, benevolence, and integrity. This comes from the work of Roger Mayer that I've adapted to the mentoring context. So self-trust, interpersonal trust. The next is, excuse me, self-trust, interpersonal trust. The next is institutional trust. And there's really two kinds of institutional trust. There's trust in the mentoring program. So this is trust in the mentoring program by the mentor, by the mentee, by the mentoring program committee by the leaders, that the mentoring program is gonna provide the kind of structure and accountability and measurement that's needed to achieve these results, right? Yes. So you, if you stop at interpersonal trust and you don't have the institutional trust, then you wonder what happened here? Why is this mentoring program not taking off? Why is this not becoming a mentoring culture? Because you haven't started to establish the trust in the mentoring program. 
And the next level is at the top of the pyramid or the top of the triangle, which is also institutional trust, but it's organizational trust. As a result of having invested in mentoring and having a mentoring program that is, you know, supported by the organization and has trust in it, that the organization itself is going to value the development of its people, right? And when yes. I've developed the skills that there's opportunities for elevation, that there's opportunities for growth and learning and contribution. And this is where having an inclusive work environment an inclusive culture in the organization really comes into play. Because if the organization isn't going to value me for investing in my development in an authentic way, and I'm never going to belong, then I'm going to take this great knowledge that I've had mentoring and take it somewhere else. Right? But if I want to stay in the organization, and I believe in this organization, then I'm going to start to pay it forward by mentoring other people, then I'm going to start to feel much more of a sense of loyalty and engagement and enthusiasm for my work. I'm going to become an evangelist for my company and what it's doing. Start recruiting other people, you know, and, and having meaningful relationships in the workplace that keep me engaged and keep others engaged. So those are there's the four really critical areas of trust when you think about mentoring. I already explained how inclusion makes a difference at the top level. Clearly it makes a difference at the bottom level as well in terms of valuing who you are and what you have to bring. And in the interpersonal level, in terms of being able to engage and invite conversations about difference into our mentoring relationship. Because so often we talk about diversity and inclusion, but we don't wanna have conversations about it because we're afraid we're gonna step into a landmine. We're afraid it's gonna trigger you know, a complaint or we're gonna say something wrong or somebody's gonna be offended that I asked a question. But when you develop that competency to invite differences into your conversation, you really build on and strengthen interpersonal trust. Lisa, you are drawing on uh, your experience as a lawyer, as a leader, as someone who's been around mentoring for a long time. Can you share an example where perhaps either you or a client got stuck? And what did it take to get unstuck? Yeah. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit because when I first heard this question, you know, I can think of lots of different examples, but I guess there's two that come to mind. So the first is a personal example where, you know, I spent a lot of years, 17 years in Chicago, which great city and a great place. And it was good to us, but you know, we, and by we, I mean, my husband and myself never fully felt a sense of belonging in Chicago. I can't put my finger on why, but we knew we were, we were planning to be there for three years and three years became 17 years. <laughs> and uh, we were looking, I think we were stuck. I think, you know, life was good enough. Things were fine. <laughs> and we just, but we didn't have this internal sense of satisfaction. And when I started traveling out here to Seattle for work, I really felt a sense of place for the first time in a long time. You know, the ability to be outdoors. I might have been a mountain goat in a last life because I loved <laughs> mountains and hiking, but also this beautiful nature and I just, you know, a bit of a smaller community. And we played around with moving out here for a while. Mm -hmm. And then, but because things were good enough, we were stuck. I think we were really stuck where we were in Chicago. And it was when... Ironically, it was weather that was the straw that broke the camel's back to move us out there. I, I was out here in Seattle and it was, it was uh, February 
it was 45 degrees here. And I called my husband who was back at home with the kids in Chicago and it was negative 45 with wind chill there. Wow. So we had a polar vortex and he hadn't left the house in three days. And I was, you know, out here walking out and the, you know, 45 degrees doesn't sound balmy, but it was sure is beautiful compared to negative 45, you know? And we finally realized, what are we doing? We really need to make, we need to take a risk to get unstuck. It was very risky. We had wonderful friends in Chicago. We had a lovely community and, but we said, we just, we got to rip off the band-aid, so to speak, and come out here. And it was a great, great, great decision. So that's the first example that came to mind. I know great example, by the way. That's good. Thank you. Uh, if you have another one, let's, let's hear yeah, it. Yeah, I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you two. The second is a more recent example and much more of a, a professional example. And so in January of, maybe it was even before January, let's see, the pandemic hit in February of 2020, right? So I would say by June of 2020, myself and a lot of my other fellow entrepreneurs who lead training organizations, I'm part of an organization, which is an association of learning providers. We were feeling like we needed to figure out what does all this mean in terms of the pandemic? You know, I, I was probably even earlier than that. And March, April, when we're all like, what does this mean for our business? What does this mean for our work life? What does it mean for all these things? and spun our wheels for a few weeks until one of my colleagues said, why don't we create a community where we meet every week and we talk about what we're experiencing and how we can challenge ourselves and our business. And we met weekly for a long time, I would say probably for nine months, then we moved to monthly and now we're on a quarterly, but it was such a great way to jumpstart our this new reality and in connection with other people realize we're not alone we can get through this crazy crazy time and support one another so those are my two the two examples that come to mind when you ask me that question those are great uh examples the last one you just mentioned i, I also found myself in community with other business owners trying to figure it out. That kind of was the impetus behind the start of this podcast. And mm -hmm. that is, let's bring folks like Lisa on, learn from Lisa, such mm -hmm. that we're all in this together. Let's figure this out. And there is silver lining. We're recording uh, this podcast the week before Thanksgiving. So it probably won't come up for air for another several more weeks. But a lot has happened in that time period. You know, Lisa, I've asked you some pretty broad, far-ranging questions, but if you were to kind of reflect on what we've discussed, what might be some of your closing thoughts or takeaways? Well, the one that just popped into mind as you, as we were just talking about this question about when you're stuck is that the antidote to being stuck is creation, mm. like creating something new, mm. minor, major, little, big community, but not, and not doing it alone. And when I think about the, you know, the title of your podcast, get unstuck and on target, it really is about this idea of creation and linking that to mentoring. What better way than by creating a mentoring relationship to help you get unstuck. You have the act of creation in creating a mentoring relationship, but also within the relationship itself, creating new possibilities and pathways for oneself. So I love the intersection of those two concepts. Oh, I love that as well. Lisa, you've given some great information for our listeners who want to reach out to you. What's the best way for them to connect with you? 
Well, check out our website, which is centerformentoring.com. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm Lisa Zachary Fain on LinkedIn. Excellent. We will include both those contacts uh, in the show notes. So if you're driving, don't feel like you've got to write that down. It will be in the show notes that you can reach out. That's uh, how Lisa and I actually came across each other the first time was via uh, LinkedIn. Lisa, thank you. Mike, thank you. What a great conversation. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. Every Thursday, we upload the latest episode to all the major platforms. So if you haven't already, please subscribe. I've got a question for you. Are people problems keeping you up at night? If yes, let's talk. Head to bench-builders.com to schedule a quick call. We'll explore ways to help you solve your people problems so you can again focus on growing your business. So I'd like to thank you for joining us, and I hope you have picked up on some tips from Lisa that will help you get unstuck and on target. Until next time.